Thanks again for joining us this morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors at Grace. As we continue through Exodus, we are presented a group of people, Israel, in the midst of an internal change brought about by an external force. God is recreating His people in His own image by giving them guidelines that not only tell them what to do and what not to do, but guidelines that uh, show them His heart, that come from His character, right? The path forward for them began when He gave them the Ten Commandments, and now He begins to describe what life looks like as they followed these commandments, what life looks like to be in a special relationship with Him called a covenant. The next couple chapters of Exodus are often called the covenant code, what life looks like when you live in this relationship with God. So as we hear Lee Monastery read these passages, these verses, I want you to ask yourself this question. In light of everything that is happening in the world, how does God want His people to live today? What does God want from you? Let's listen to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, that you make your word come alive, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing bone and soul and flesh. And God, we ask that you would do that in our hearts this morning through your word. Expose the dark places of our hearts, not to shame us, not to condemn us, but to heal us, renew us, and set us free. I ask that we would believe and be changed by your gospel this morning. I also ask that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It's the year 2000, and the number one gift on the top of 14-year-old Stephen's list is a Razor scooter. This is the year that they came out, and I was so excited to get one. Now, I can't remember if it was for my birthday or for Christmas, but I was given the money to go and pick one out because there were like five different configurations that you could choose from. So I took the money and I went to Toys R Us. This was a store that sold toys, kind of like Amazon, but in person, and picked out one that had orange wheels. I was excited beyond belief. But I brought it home and I set it on the ground and I didn't open it up and I didn't ride it. And after a couple of days, maybe a week, I'm not exactly sure, I took it back to Toys R Us and got the money back. Because there was something a little bit more exciting about having the $100 than it was about having the Razor scooter. Right? As a 14-year-old, $100 made me feel like I was incredibly rich, like the possibilities were endless. And there was something in my heart 
some desire to have that power, access to those possibilities that riding a scooter would never fill. Now, even though I'm older, that thing in my heart, that desire is still there. Substitute whatever you want for the scooter. A new pair of shoes, a cell phone, a car. There's something in my heart that will always value the possibilities that the money brings over those things. I would rather walk around in a pair of shoes that have holes in them. We use a cell phone until it doesn't work anymore and drive a car full of holes before spending the money to go get them. Sure, there's something involved with the thing itself, but really the problem lies inside my heart. It's really all about what's happening in my heart. And here in this passage, God speaks the same way about how He wants to be worshipped. He opens the covenant code by talking about worship practices, just as He did the Ten Commandments. Now, in most of the translations of the Bible that you have in front of you, this section has the heading, Laws About Altars. And that's fine, because here God does talk about the construction, the use, and the misuse of places of worship and sacrifice But just like in the Ten Commandments, we need to see that God is far more concerned about the heart of His people. He gives them these laws in order to help direct and protect the hearts of His people as they come to worship Him. Throughout Scripture, we see that God does have some things to say about the ways in which His people worship Him, the modes and the methods. But without question, throughout His Word, God is far more concerned about the heart of His people when they come to worship Him. He gives them these laws about altars at the beginning of the covenant code in order to free His people to worship Him with their whole heart, to come to Him with everything that they have, with everything that's going on in their lives, whether they're broken or exhausted or poor or confused or angry or sad or elated or joyful or wealthy. God invites all of His people to come to Him whenever, with everything that's going on. And He may be the mode of our worship has changed, but the same invitation, the same freedom exists for God's people today, to come to Him with everything that you've got going on, with everything that fills your heart. And that makes these passages incredibly important to us. The covenant code begins by saying, don't worship yourself, simply follow God. Don't worship yourself, simply follow God. Those are our two points this morning. We start by the command not to worship yourself. One of the things that stands out to me in this passage is the fact that God gives both positive and negative commands when He's speaking about how the Israelites should worship Him. Look just at the negative commands to start. Don't make gods of silver. Don't make gods of gold. Don't build altars out of hewn stones, and don't do that so that your nakedness would not be exposed on it. That's a lot of knots. I mixed them up in there. It's all about the negative commands, right? And if those commands seem oddly specific to you, it's because these are the practices of worship for the nations surrounding the promised land. If you'll remember, God is preparing His people to enter into Canaan, the land that he had promised to the, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, the land that he is preparing them for, is surrounded by these other nations. And these are the ways that they worship their own gods, their inferior gods, their idols, right? They build houses that are ornate to worship 
that are built out of marble and, and precious stone, right? They place these giant altars to give sacrifice to their gods, right? Their gods themselves, the idols, are made out of precious metal, silver, gold, and, and expensive uh, gems. They practice temple prostitution, right? These are the ways that the other nations worship their gods. They, they please their gods by engaging in these activities that are, if you take a step back, actually elevating the worshiper, right? They, they feed something inside of the worshiper, right? Building a, a huge altar out of expensive stone certainly brings some pride to the person who paid for it. It fills the person who constructed it and built it with some sort of pride. Being able to afford one of these idols made out of gold or silver puts you in a specific category in terms of your social status, right? Temple prostitution feeds something inside of the worshiper. The Apostle John calls these three the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. As much as worship like this was meant to attract favor from the deity, as much as it was to garner a blessing and incline that god or goddess to look down on favor on behalf of the worshiper, deep down these practices wind their way into self-gratification, into self-worship, right? It's amazing that the, the idols of the nations surrounding Israel are to be pleased by doing the things that conveniently please humans, right? This is one of the reasons that God forbids His people from worshiping like this. Feeding those internal desires leads people to do all kinds of things, to ignore all kinds of warnings, to walk away from God, and to walk into all kinds of death. In her novel, Song of Solomon, Toni Morrison writes about this using an example that will help us understand it, a children's story that I think most of us know. She writes, When Hansel and Gretel stood in the forest and saw the house in the clearing before them, the little hairs on the nape of their neck must have shivered. Their knees must have felt so weak that not even blinding hunger could have propelled them forward. No one was there to warn or hold them. Their parents, chastened and grieving, were far away. So they ran as fast as they could to the house where a woman older than death lived, and they ignored the shivering nape hair and the, and the softness in their knees. A grown man can also be energized by hunger, and any weakness in his knees or irregularity in his heartbeat will disappear if he thinks that hunger is about to be assuaged, especially if the object of his craving is not gingerbread or chewy gumdrops, but gold. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are the things that the nations garner their worship around, center their worship on, and it leads away from God. And so God says, we're not going to do that. When you're in relationship with me, things are going to look different. The negative commands that God gives here expose the ways in which we seek to fill the desires of our hearts, and in doing so, turn worship of God into worship of self. Now, in our time, we have been stripped of our reliance upon church buildings, of our ability to impress others by how we dress, how well we sing, how much of Scripture we know, how much we've memorized, right? How well our family operates together, how much we've got it together. And yet, our hearts still find ways to turn worshiping God 
into worshiping self. We create expectations for ourselves and for other people who proclaim themselves to be Christians. We think things and believe things like true Christians don't do those things, or they don't watch those TV shows, right? We think and say and believe things like all Christians should be responding to racist murders and destructive riots and COVID-19 like this. And of course, subtly, like this really means just like me. We condemn the actions of other people, people who have hurt us, maybe a random person, maybe our neighbor, maybe a spouse, and we think things and say things like, I can't believe you did that. I thought you were a Christian. It reminds me of a quote from Tim Keller, maybe a tweet or a quote, I'm not sure where it was, but he said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Where is Jesus walking you into tense places? Where are you having to second-guess what you've always thought to believe is true because you hear Jesus say something in Scripture, or you see Jesus doing something in the world that is a little bit different than what you expected? If that's not happening, if Jesus just seems to go along with what you believe and what you think and what you say and what you do, there's a chance that you're not worshiping Jesus. You might just be worshiping yourself. Don't worship yourself. Simply follow God. That's our second point. Simply follow God. God starts the covenant code by reminding them of their special relationship, just like He did the Ten Commandments. He says, you've seen for yourselves how I've talked with you from heaven. God reminds them, I make myself known to my people and I'm going to keep doing it. Follow me to the places where I will make my name remembered. That's what he says, and that's where you're going to worship me, right? The negative commands uh, expose our desire to fill ourselves up, but the positive commands here strip the glitz and the glamour and the distraction away from worship. God says, follow me to the places I'll make my name remembered, and there, just use plain old dirt to make an altar. If you're going to use rocks, just use the rocks that are lying around. Don't spend your time like cutting and shaping and making them look all nice and neat. Don't think that you can buy my attention or affection with exaggerated actions or expensive buildings or gold or silver or any of that craziness. God said, I want you. I want just you. Worshiping God is simple. It's easily accessible to anyone and everyone. You don't have to have all kinds of money or any special skills or any special gifts. Anybody can worship this way simply by following God. And that's the really important thing to see here. Remember that I said that the other people in the ancient Near East, these nations surrounding Israel, they engaged in these acts of worship, this temple prostitution, idols made of gold and silver, all these kinds of things, in order to get something from that God that they were worshiping. They hoped that giving all this money, offering this sacrifice, engaging this way would would please the God and make them move towards the person doing the worship, right? It's like garnering attention, trying to gain some kind of interaction, helping this deity see your problems, your pain, your concern. God starts these commands by saying, you've already got my attention. 
We're already interacting. I've already spoken with you from heaven. And I'm leading you to a place, to the promised land, where we are going to dwell together. Simply follow me. Now, something odd that you might have missed here is the fact that the word worship isn't actually used. God doesn't say anything about singing. He doesn't say anything about praying. In fact, the only thing that He talks about here is in these places where He will make His name remembered, they should offer sacrifices of burnt offerings and peace offerings, sheep and oxen. Well, that makes total sense, right? They're just talking about altars, and that's what an altar is for, offering offerings on them. Um, and at the same time, like, if God is making His name remembered, obviously something special happens in that interaction where God interacts with His people, and it would be nice to, you know, remember what happened there. One of our family traditions when we go on vacation is to buy a Christmas ornament from that place so that every year when we take out the tree and put up the ornaments, we get to see and, and remember all the great vacations that we went on. Nicole and I bought this awesome, crazy, zany ceramic uh, cactus from Sedona years ago when we went. Our girls love this ornament that's got these beautiful pieces of blue and purple glass in it that we got from Mendocino last summer. And the reason these uh, ornaments are special to us is not because they're made of special material. It's not even because the places that we've been to are absolutely amazing. The ornaments are special because it reminds us of of what we've done together, of how we've uh, interacted with each other. God is not asking Israel to make sacrifices so they can remember the interactions there. That's not the point. When God and man interact, blood must be spilled. Sin causes separation between man and God. All humans are sinful, and God, when He chooses to move across that separation, must punish sin. And graciously, He accepts here in this passage the blood of sheep and oxen, So he says, wherever I come to you and I interact with you, you have to offer sacrifice. Blood must be shed for us to interact. Now, that rule has never changed. In order for humans to interact with God, blood must be shed. The sacrifice is what has changed. One of the ways that the Bible talks about Jesus' death is by saying he was the perfect sacrifice once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' life of perfect obedience means that His blood shed on the cross can cover every single interaction between man and God. No more sacrifices are necessary. But if you happen to hear the way that Jesus prayed about us, His, His people, His followers in His high priestly prayer, which we read earlier in the service, you'd catch something else. There's no longer special meeting locations either. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 23, I in them and you in me. He's praying to the Father and he's praying about us. So if Jesus is in us and the Father is in him, then we're in the Father, right? The transitive property, all that stuff, that's what that whole passage is about. It's about the fact that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit that God gives, in, it gives sends into the hearts of his followers, God meets with his people daily. He interacts with them personally, speaking to them, walking with them, changing them, blessing them, as he says in this passage. And that leads the Apostle Paul to write this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What does that mean for us? Well, if you are following Jesus, then your heart is the meeting place, the altar, and the sacrifice that God invites you to give to Him. It makes this incredibly personal. So we should ask the question, where is God taking us? Where is God leading His people? And it seems to me that what is being stirred up in the world, in our society right now, exposes our anger and our hate. Hate towards other people in the form of racism and bigotry, in the form of uh, political partisanship, and demonizing those who view things differently from us. Anger in the actions and reactions and inaction of the people standing next to you in the supermarket, of your family, of your church. Everywhere we turn, we're being told that you need to examine your heart, you need to examine your mind and figure out which side you're on, and also to see and agree with how ridiculous the other side is, how stupid they must be for believing in that kind of thing. It seems like God is leading His people into a time of repentance. And yet, all the meanwhile, what I'm seeing, and I hope you're starting to see too, is that there is a shift in the mindset of our culture. People are starting to wake up to the reality that all humans are valuable and hold dignity, no matter their skin color or their gender, no matter their education or economic status. And I hope that our culture is beginning to wake up to the reality that each human is created in the image of God. Now, they're probably not ever going to call it that, but everywhere I look, I see people starting to see that humans are valuable because they are created by God and they bear God's fingerprints. And it's leading to these amazing instances of repentance and reconciliation. God is leading His people into a time of repentance and forgiveness. So how do we simply follow God into a time of repentance and forgiveness? What is it that He is asking us to sacrifice in the midst of repentance and forgiveness? Well, I'll just give you one quick thing, comfort. God invites us to sacrifice our comfort by asking deep questions of people around us and listening, especially when we know we're not going to like the answers. Ask your neighbor, ask your coworker, ask your spouse, how have I offended you? How have I hurt you? How have I marginalized you? And then listen. And if you're like me, your heart is already starting to make excuses, ways to, to get out of it, or at least lessen the discomfort a little. Well, I don't really know my neighbor, uh, but I know this person on the other side of the country, so I'll text them. That's not going to be quite so bad. Well, I don't think it's appropriate for me to talk to my coworkers about things like this. It could cause some problems. I'm not going to ask my spouse those questions. Do you know what they did to me? I'm not going to ask them that until they do fill in the blank. We follow God into repentance and forgiveness by weeping and lamenting, as Bob said earlier. 
lamenting over the reality that you and I, we have a hand in this, that our sin plays a part in how our society seems to be coming unraveled. Ask God these dangerous questions. Where am I angry? Where am I harboring hate? Where has my hate and my anger spilled over and wounded or isolated or condemned others? Those are scary questions to ask, and you might honestly be afraid of how God could choose to answer those. But if you are following Jesus, if you are trusting in His death and resurrection for you, then you have the freedom and the boldness to ask those questions, knowing that His perfect blood has been shed for you. So there is no more condemnation, no matter how bad those answers might be, no matter how embarrassing God might make those answers be in your heart. Following God simply, it may seem like a painfully dull and boring life without any measure of beauty or joy or fun, but what's amazing is God is inviting Israel into this simple life of worshiping God as He prepares them to go into the promised land. And when they get there, God walks them to to His dwelling place, to Jerusalem, to the place where He has decided to not interact with His people, but to commune with His people, to live, to live daily life with His people. And do you know what they build there? He commands them to build a beautiful, ornate, richly adorned temple to fill the desires of their hearts, a place where they can come and interact with God day in and day out to commune with Him. And God is still in the process of bringing His people to His home today, you and I. And by all accounts of Scripture, this home that God is bringing us to through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not simple. It's not humble. It's amazing. Revelation 21 tells us that the streets are made of pure gold and crystal. And what's awesome about that is not that there's gold and crystal everywhere, but that tells us that it is a place of deep communion with God, where we will dwell with Him face to face, interacting with God, living with God in the midst of a covenant looks like not worshiping ourselves, but by simply following Him, sacrificing, repenting, and forgiving in the certain hope that He is bringing us home. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You invite us into this special relationship, that through the death and resurrection of Your Son, we have access to the throne immediately. We thank You that Jesus willingly sacrificed Himself, sacrificed His glory, sacrificed His life in order to set us free, in order to help us see that everything we have is a gift from You, and we therefore can sacrifice it as well. Help us to be quick to repent, quick to forgive, and quick to rejoice with others as we see the gospel changing lives. Help it to change ours first. We pray this in the mighty name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.